like the, the artwork that the team came up with in relation to this summer series. I, I actually just first noticed it last week, and you know, we are in one of those beginning movements. We're making a journey together that's going to take us into the summer, and our theme is a life worth giving. And so this is kind of like the, the first movement in this, and uh, we're, we're starting out, and we're going to spend a lot of time here. But I thought the imagery, the symbolism, the artwork itself was a lesson. And uh, one of the things as I was looking at it, and I didn't really talk with them about it, so it, it was, uh, when I saw it, I go, wow, you guys really captured the essence, I think, of what we're trying to do here. And, you know, the first thing that I noticed were, was probably what most of us, well, I don't know. That's the thing about art. You never know what someone else is seeing. But I, I clearly saw the hands. And, you know, especially coming out of the fall series last year where we talked about the prodigal son and uh, Rembrandt's painting and how the father's hands were so prominent in that painting. And, and just seeing these hands really do capture this essence of what we're trying to explore. This has to do with giving. This has to do with giving of ourselves. It has to do with considering what it is to offer something up. And so, you know, the hands can be something that receive, but it also can be something that gives. And in this case, it does have the feeling of wanting to give away something of who we are. And of course, behind it, which was an interesting touch they put on it, behind the image itself are these words. And these words are not just any words. They're words that are from the Bible, but they're not just, you know, any words in the Bible. They're from the book of Romans and not just any part of the book of Romans. They're from the 12th chapter of Romans, and the part of that book that talks about how we are all intertwined with one another. It uses an expression of the church, the community of believers who move together um, as being like a body where there are different parts that can serve one another, without which the body could never be or the church could never be, the community could never be complete uh, because everybody is meant to bring something to it. And it really does capture this idea that we've all been given gifts by God to offer up in his name. And that part of this Christian life is trying to discover and develop and use the gifts and capacities that God births into us when we begin to follow him. It's becoming who we are. It's finding ourselves in him. And it's using it not just for ourselves to have self-discovery, but it's the purposes of the Lord are always tied in some way or another, to blessing others. And of course, the part of the image that you can't miss is the flower, because it's sitting right there. And I thought, boy, even the flower itself has got this outreaching feel to it. It's beautiful. Flowers give off a fragrance. They, they make a difference. There's this idea of giving out, of moving outward, of giving ourselves away. And then, of course, the color, red, the center, the heart, everything about it speaks of what the Lord wants our motives to be, for he wants it to come from our heart, that um, the essence of commitment, as we are taught in the scriptures, has to do with a love it, that flows out of who we are, and we give it away. Service done in his name. I give you a part of who I am. I bless you. It's, it's about giving of, of our own selves. And so this is what we're going to explore together, and you know, in the coming weeks, we're going to hear different speakers share their take on it. And it's always interesting to me how someone is looking at something and sees it and completely different maybe than I, I get a look at it. We always talk about how, depending on your angle, something looks maybe a little bit different. So this is where we're heading. I'm going to talk about just what I feel like the Lord put in my heart to share 
in, in a couple of minutes here, but I want to pray. I want to ask God to bless our time. And Lord, we've already worshipped and we've acknowledged you in our songs. And, and um, you know, we're excited. Uh, at least I feel excitement in my heart about where we're going in terms of just taking our faith and trying to uh, play it out in the everydayness of our commitments and in our service and in our generosity. I really want to ask you, Lord, to bless everybody who is here this, um, this late morning and early afternoon. You know, we've made a decision to come and draw near to you. One of the promises that your word gives us is that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. And so I really want to pray grace and blessing and life over everyone who's chosen to be in your house. Uh, you, Lord, know what's going on in us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know me better than I know myself. And I'm thankful. I pray that there be an enlargement of gratitude in, in our hearts, Lord, a gratitude and, and an understanding of who you are that provokes us and affects us in such a way that we are compelled to want to make a difference with our lives. Lord, we've been given a, this great gift of a life, and it goes by very fast. It's here one day and gone the next. If we have a privilege of a long life, Lord, um, honestly, how we're living matters maybe more than the duration. What can we contribute? Why are we here? What is our purpose? How do we bless others in your name? How can we leave behind a heritage of blessing? Well, we want to sit with these things. Lord. We ask for your presence and grace to be among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Let it be true in our lives. Uh, the man that I wanted to look at was someone who had interacted with Jesus. He was not the kind of person that we would have associated necessarily with becoming a follower of the Lord. In his day, he would have been considered a highly unlikely candidate. And yet we know that by the time Jesus is finished with this man, who we know is as Zacchaeus, by the time the Lord is done with him, there's been a radical change in his life. There's been an alteration of his life path. Here is an example of a man who came to Jesus, interacted with him, and his life was altered dramatically because of it. Verse 1, it's Luke 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now that city doesn't mean too much to us. In the big picture, this is actually quite a significant moment in the ministry and life of Jesus. Why? because he was on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He knew what was going to happen there. He was already talking about it. He understood what awaited him. This was his last stop on the way to that city. He understood that after all the celebration and the hosannas that welcomed him into the city were done, that by the end of the week he was a dead man. He also understood that this was actually the purpose for which he had come, that the Lord had made it, it clear to his disciples that for this purpose the Son of Man has come to give his life as a ransom for many, that he, he came to die. He was born to die for us as the ultimate sacrifice to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God himself does for us. He who was rich, as the scripture says poetically, became poor that we who were poor might be made rich in him. This, this is where he knew he was heading. Now, Jericho was sort of his last stop on the way. It was a kind of important town. I'm just going to put up a, a, a really simple map for us to look at, just to kind of get a geographical idea of what we're talking about. Jericho is very close, as you can see, just a little bit east of Jerusalem, near the Jordan River. There's the Dead Sea up on top of the Sea of Galilee. And then, of course, to the other side, to the west, is the Mediterranean Sea. But Jericho was a very significant city for a number of reasons. One, it was a beautiful city. It was in the, plain, the Jordan Plain, the valley. 
uh, it was noted as a, as a place where it, there was palm trees and different types of sycamores and uh, the balsamic plant, which yielded the uh, balsamic, the, the balm, the balm of Gilead, the oil that was often used as a healing ointment and was, you know, traded all over the known world at that time. And this occurred in Jer Jericho was a place of great prominence, a military, uh, commercial center from the east. If people were making a journey, as they would typically do at least three times a year uh, for the festivals, they would come through this eastern gate. And Jericho was like the last stop on the way there. And people would frequently, you know, stay overnight there, spend their money there. Um, traders would come through this route. As a result, it was a very prosperous city um, at the time of Jesus and was a place where if one was industrious, they could make uh, a, good, a good living. They could make some money. Zacchaeus was one of those individuals. But we also know something else about Jericho. Remember last week, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan that our youth pastor shared with us when he was talking, and Lewis was talking about the Good Samaritan and how Jesus told this story of this uh, traveler, this businessman who left Jerusalem to go to Jericho. I mean, when Jesus starts his story of the Good Samaritan, he's using the road that connects Jerusalem to Jericho as an example of the place, because it was notorious for um, thievery. Uh, we we're, were told that this man making his travel along that route came, um, fell among thieves in the biblical language and was beaten and, and stripped naked and left, for, left half dead on the side of the road. Jesus uses that as an illustration for his story and talks about you know, the, the, uh, how people pass by and ultimately says it was the Samaritan who took the time to take care of this man and anoint him with this oil and bind his wounds and put him in. And we, we talk about, really, if you think about it, that wasn't just an ending to the Hurts of Life series. It really was a, a, a segue into this series in which we're talking about what it means to actually serve others in his name and to bless others in his name. And so this, this city of Jericho is very much a part of the sort of the biblical world that Jesus operated in. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing through Jericho. We know that there was a man in Jericho that um, was named Zacchaeus. And we, we read about him now in verse 2. It says, Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was very rich. It was rich. In the Bible, those terms usually went together. Chief, tax collector, and rich were usually connected. And uh, let us say that in the day of the disciples, there were few people, few occupations as uniformly despised as a tax collector. They were viewed as, they were often called, if you read a different version in the scriptures, a they were called publicans. They were collectors of, of tax on the part of Rome. In this case, they would be sellouts, traitors, because here they were working for a Roman overlord, collecting money that was being sent back to Rome, and you would pay a steep price. Rome enforced uh, the publicans as they collected the taxes. So, but here, here's the deal. A, a tax collector was responsible for delivering a certain amount of money that was decided on by Rome. It was based upon the, the population, and it was somewhat of an arbitrary number, but it was well thought out. The, a chief publican would then be responsible for turning that payment over to Rome. Rome then would say, whatever else you collect, that's yours. And so they, they, would <laughs> they were notorious for taking not just what Rome was going to get, but they would take their own cut as well, and Rome would turn a blind eye, and they would get rich. So they weren't just traitors, they were also crooks. 
often thought, spoken of in the same language as the worst of sinners, as they were called, publicans. Task, and he wasn't just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. That is, he oversaw a network of tax collectors. They got their cut, and then he got a cut of their cut. He was very, very wealthy man, but he was hated. He was hated. We're also told something else about him. We're, we're told that he was a person who was intrigued by Jesus. Now, you understand, by this time, Jesus is, is really uh, a figure that everybody was interested in. Many, everybody had an opinion on him. There was the rumor was that he was heading to Jerusalem to finally declare himself Messiah. Uh, as he's making his way to Jerusalem from the east through Jericho, there, there's a large group of people that have attached themselves to him. Beyond the disciples and the other followers that were associated, there were another group of onlookers. He was teaching, he was doing miracles, he was in the news. And everybody wanted to see what was going to happen. It was heading to a point of great climax. Everybody knew that. So when it's almost like there was a parade that would, by this point, where he went, a large gathering of people went. People would come out to see him go by. He was a bit of a celebrity figure at this point, where everybody was interested in, in seeing this Jesus. And they had heard a lot of rumors about him, too, that he was very unconventional that he was different than the other teachers. That he, and in Zacchaeus' case, it would have been even more of a possibility that the rumor hit him because the rumor was that, that he actually interacted with people like Zacchaeus, which was something that was not uh, in vogue in that day. It was not something that was done. It, it, there was clear lines of demarcation between the, the righteous good and the unrighteous bad, and he was at the far extreme of the unrighteous bad. And so the idea that, that this Jesus, who was so popular and controversial, was passing and did these things, was passing by, uh, he wanted to get a glimpse of him. And the Bible doesn't tell us every detail, but it tells us enough. It says that he was actually a smaller man in stature. And so when the word came out that Jesus was actually coming through the town, he tried to see him, but we're told with clear, clear language that he got stuck in the density of the crowd, and they weren't giving him any room. And so he couldn't... He couldn't see Jesus, and he wanted to see him. He was intrigued. His curiosity had been piqued, and he wanted to get his own bird's-eye glimpse, but the crowds were thronging in, and he couldn't get through. And so he, what was he going to do? And we're told that not only was he curious, but I think it was something more going on there, which we'll talk about in a moment, but he was also extraordinarily resourceful because he quickly uh, calculated and assessed that if things were like this, he was not going to be able to see him. And he wanted to look at him, just like you and I. When we're, we're at an event, it's amazing. You, you kind of want to see what's going on. And so Zacchaeus was just like that. And the scripture says that he, he, he thought to himself, what can I do here? And he spot, I, I would imagine he looked a little bit down the pathway, kind of assessed where, the, where it was going, and saw a tree. It's, we're told it was a sycamore tree. It was a fig mulberry tree. It was a tree that had long branches. No doubt one of those branches would, would have reached over the pathway a little bit. There probably, when he saw the tree, there were probably kids on it already. But the, the rich guy, the little rich guy, he decided he wasn't going to take any chances here. And uh, he does something that would have been somewhat undignified. Be, he, he takes off running, and he runs to that tree, and then he does something even more undignified. He jumps up there, and he climbs up on the tree on the limb, right? He climbs up there, and he sets himself down. 
and he's waiting for Jesus to pass by. That's the picture we have. And here he is, Zacchaeus, on the tree, and then there is Jesus coming down the way, and there is Zacchaeus looking at him, just wanting to see a glimpse, got a really good view of everything that's going on here, and nobody notices him, and then something uh, absolutely amazing happens to him. It, it would have been startling and thrilling all at once because this Jesus, who he had only heard about, looks back up at him and stops. And he says, Zacchaeus, hey you, up in the tree. You come on down from that tree. Me? from this tree and he probably felt a little awkward at that moment what are you doing up in that tree anyway uh, I, Jesus says I want to come to your my house I want to come to your house and I'm gonna eat at your house tonight and to go to someone's house someone like Jesus to go to his house wasn't really in his way of thinking because you see when you went to someone's house you were Something was signing off on him. So this didn't, didn't happen. It wasn't common. It wasn't supposed to happen. Jesus stops and he says, Zacchaeus. Now, how does he, I, we don't know. The one thing about the Bible, it doesn't tell us, did Jesus know his name already? Did someone whisper, who, that's Zacchaeus? Did the Lord just know that's your name? We don't, the Bible, is one thing about the Bible, it, it gives us nice, clear um, lines to see things. So when it speaks, it gives us certain details, but then it gives us a lot of liberty to use our imagination in between the lines and kind of color in. And um, I like to take advantage of that as long as we understand that what we're coloring in can never be equal to what the lines are. We can surmise things, think about what could have happened. We can look at it from a different direction. The Bible invites us to do that. That's why Jesus used stories. None of us see a story exactly, exactly alike. But, but then there are some things that are very clear when the facts are stated. And one of the things that, that is stated here is that when, when Zacchaeus is on that, that limb, let me just get down from here, Lord, that when he was on that limb, he got so excited. It says he was just ecstatic with joy. Hold on, I, I'm getting down. And, and he couldn't wait. He couldn't believe it. He's going to come to my house, my house. And we're not told, we're not told what happens Behind, it's like at this moment, the Bible just draws the curtains. And we don't know what goes on there inside. We are told nothing of that conversation, the exchange, what occurs, what does Jesus say, how does Zacchaeus, does he ask him questions? We don't know anything. It's just like the curtains are drawn and we are left on the, now we do know, some, we do know a couple of things though. We know what was going on on the outside. Because it says here that on the outside, verse 7, when the people saw that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house, the crowd became agitated and angry. They were upset. They, they felt it was inappropriate. Doesn't he know who Zacchaeus is? Doesn't he understand the kind of man he is? The guy's a criminal. The guy steals from us. What is Jesus doing? I'm disappointed in him. Oh, yeah, that's because he's just a friend of the rich. He leaves us poor out. He'll go out where it's nice. Go stay in the house of the, the rich guy when he comes to Jericho. All the stuff that was being said. It's interesting because you know what's interesting about the Bible? It's the way 
way it talks, you know, when you look at Jesus, Jesus was absolutely a friend of the poor. The Bible says the poor received him gladly. By far and away, it was the poor and the middle class that, that most embraced the Lord when he was in his earthly ministries. But it didn't mean that he didn't care about the wealthy. He actually often saw them as the people with the most difficult time actually of being awakened because he said they have so much things that they can almost camouflage their need. And he would say, that's how come it's very hard, actually, for a person of great wealth, he would say, to make it into the kingdom. Because why? They can fill their life up with things. They get what they want. They can buy what they want. They, they don't have, he says, and, and actually, he cared about those people, too. The people who, the Lord had a very broad reach. He, he didn't write people off on either spectrum. He saw everyone as in need. I don't think I need to make the case that some of the most miserable, messed up people in the world are people with the most means and power and, and sometimes substance and resource and fame. And spectacles for us to read about in the papers, but really sad, tragic stories working out, playing out before our eyes many times. Not always. The Lord cares. People, Zach, I'm going to tell you something. Zacchaeus, listen, was at the top of his profession. You couldn't get any higher than what he had gotten. He was rich, powerful, but he, he is more than just curious. He was open. He wanted to change. But he was in a situation where, and it was interesting because we don't know much about his parents, except that for whatever the reason, and we can surmise it was for the best intentions, they decided to name their son Zachai, which means with all irony, pure, righteous, and just. Here was a man who was named and became something completely, the 100% polarized opposite of what his name that was given to him represented. And whatever those intentions were, they were realized, they were never realized. And here is this man with a hungry, with a heart that's open. And you know what the Bible says? That when the curtains are opened up, the next thing we see is Zacchaeus stepping outside, and, and we don't know what goes on on the inside, but we know this, what goes on afterwards. Zacchaeus says, you know, I, I um, he doesn't say, I believe in Jesus. That's implied already. He says, I, because why? Because anyone can acknowledge that, but how does that actually affect one's life tangibly? You know what he says? Look at it. He says, I'm, uh, I need to make, I need, I need to say something, and the people were listening. He says, I made a decision that um, I want to give away half of my resource to the poor. And he says, but more than that, I, I, I made another decision that, that, some, that if I've robbed any of you, and to which a lot of them turned to one another and said, that's me, all right? <laughs> um, I want to return fourfold on, on what, I, what I took. And Jesus basically stops him and says, man, do you understand what's just happened here? Do you understand? He says, a son has come home. We now have a son of Abraham. He says, now we see someone who has returned home to God. You criticize me for being with him. But I'm going to tell you, God cares about him. And, and you see what's happening here. 
And he says, look at this. He is following in the pathway of his father Abraham. They, they understood that term. He's walking in the path of the one who showed us how to live in faith with God. He's walking back in this path. And then Jesus blurts out, adds on, do you understand that the Son of Man, he, now he's talking at the core of why he has come. The Son of Man has come, and this is the essence of everything that he was about. It was his motivation for heading to Jerusalem. He understands that there's another tree. He looked up and he saw that sycamore tree, but there's another tree that he himself is going to climb in a way, and it's where he's heading. And he says the Son of Man himself has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Do you understand the heartbeat of God? Because it will explain everything. It's almost like he says, those of us who follow him must be bound up with that same passion. So what can we draw from this? This is just my take on it. Hopefully it'll, it'll speak to us. You, you weigh it out. I want to suggest that in our life with God, that there are some times where we're going to have to uh, understand the metaphor, obviously. If we're going to see Jesus, we're going to have to climb a tree to see him. It's not just going to happen. We're going to get see in life we get we get into the stuff. We get lost up and we get locked out. We get get to a point we can't see right. And so there are times where if we're going to do this thing, we're going to have to put a little bit of effort to get to a higher place to see it right. And that's going to cost us something. I think it's when you climb, you, you, what did it cost? It cost him a little bit of his dignity. It cost him a little bit of effort. The idea that we're somehow going to get breakthrough a lot of times without putting something out for it, it's not going to happen. We, you know, it's funny. We understand that when it comes to just sort of natural things like exercise and, and um, when we want to achieve something. We understand that whatever we get, that if it's valuable, it's going to actually cost us something. We've got to pay a price for it. And there are times where we're going to want to have something show up in a key moment in our lives that's going to we want it to come out of us. And what's going to come out is what we put in. And we're going to reach in, for, we're going to reach in and it's not going to be there because we didn't put in. We, see, there are some of us, the Lord's actually calling us to, to change some things around, to change the vantage point. Some of us, you know, it might, it might, I was thinking about it in my own life. I was thinking, you know, it could be something as simple as just re, redevoting ourselves to actually studying the Bible on a regular basis or really beginning to apply ourselves to have a consistent time of devotion to the Lord. We're reading and we're, we're maybe praying and we're reflecting and meditating on the things of the Lord. We're combining it with a really good uh, book, perhaps, that is designed to give us understanding and keep us on the growing edge. Maybe for some of us it might be that the Lord might be wanting us to come back to do, doing some journaling with him, spending quality time with the Lord, investing in our spirit. Others of us it might have to do with just making a decision to get involved with a group of some type, a small group, where we're actually getting rich conversation that is going to challenge us at a deep and honest level to become the better version of ourselves that God wants us to be. Think about what it is, why I'm here. Because you know why a lot of times we get so caught up in living that we forget what life is all about. And I, I think that for some of us it might actually be a time of simplification where we've gotten so caught up in the crowd of things. We've got this going on, this going on, that going on. We don't see Jesus. We've we got to go climb that tree. What tree are we being asked to climb? Is there, is there an adjustment that needs to be made in our life so that new life can flow? Because I wonder, if he had never made that decision, would he have ever been seen? You know, what part do we play in positioning ourselves for God to reach out to us and begin to work in our lives? That's what I'm asking. 
Are there not things the Lord might be calling us to do that shake things up in us? I, I really believe that what we put in and invest will pay off, and it will pay off in a many different ways. But it will pay off. And it'll show up. And a lot of us, God is saying, you know what, you've got to put... You've got to put a little effort into this. Get involved. Be open to serving. Change it up. Change the angle. Look at this a little different. Don't get stuck. You know, I was thinking about how uh, uh, we're, when the Lord uses an analogy of what a, a fo his followers are to look like, he doesn't say you're supposed to look like a settled pond. Because when water's just stuck in a puddle, it just, over time, it just starts to get really dirty and dank, doesn't it? And stuff grows in there because there's no life flow. The Lord says, no, you're like to be like a, a river of water flowing through you. This is what it's meant to be. The life of God moving through like a rushing river, like a brook flowing, where it's, there's life in it. It's not meant to just, you know, tip God with an hour. He wants a relationship. It's like the Lord... He said it, not me. And it, it's a good thing, too, because I'm reminded of it. He says, I don't want, he basically says, look, I, I, I appreciate your offering. He says, I appreciate your time to come. He says, but if you can't give me your heart, because I really, it's not, I, I don't need that. I want, I want you. It's like someone saying that, you know, I love you, I love you, but I don't really want to spend any time with you. But I love you, and I believe in you. We're close. <laughs> the image that Jesus gives of knocking on the door. Let me in. Let me in. He loves us enough to let us reject him. That's how much God loves us. And he wants to have a relationship with us, and he wants, to, he wants us to grow, and he wants us to have a life, and not just a, a, a religious experience that does the right things, but is disconnected from the heart. It is this, with that in the middle. But it's not just about us doing. Secondly, it's about his grace. Because even our heart, our yearning, um, to want to move forward with God is because God is first moving to us. Jesus takes the initiative, doesn't he? He, is, he asks the question, and in reality, he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Think about it. The one who asks the question, but in reality, it's really Jesus who's doing the inviting, isn't it? And the one who is the guest is really the host. Jesus says, I want to come to your house today, my friend. Come on down from that tree. I'm coming over. It's the initiation of the Lord. Always, listen, every, everything, in, if there's any spark in us for God, it's because God first moved in our lives. You read a man like St. Augustine in his book called The Confessions, where he talks about his transformation to becoming a follower of the Lord. One of the things he stands in amazement of and he wonders about is he says, Lord, when did you first put that in my heart to realize that there was something I needed and I didn't even know what it was? but it pushed me on a pathway to begin to make me begin to seek you. So in a way, you even now that I've come to know you, it was because you first provoked in my heart a yearning for something more. You created that openness in me. You put it in me. And Jesus said, blessed are you 
Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, because if you do, you will be filled. Hunger and thirst is a gift. Thirdly, you see it clearly in the story. One of the evidences of, a, of God at work in our lives will always show up in our giving and in our generosity. I'm continually amazed, just surrounded by people who are extraordinarily giving people. When, you, when we have people in our lives who are amazing, who give so beautifully, it, what a blessing. And we, to the irony is the tendency is to take them for granted and to, uh, and, to, and to not really appreciate oftentimes what those people are in our lives. And yet, <laughs> the reality is how rich is our lives because people, and when you meet someone who gives, you know, and gives freely, and, and I, you know, it could be giving of our resource, people who give of the resource, but people sometimes who just love to, but also there's the, the blessing of words or uh, just freely giving us good, good words. How encouraging. How, how much does the Lord want us to be like that? You know, one of the things that, uh, there's a verse there, Luke 6, 38, Jesus said this, he said, give away your life, and what you'll find is your life is given back, but not merely given back. Here's the irony. When we give things away in the Lord, it comes back to us, but not in the same measure. He says, greater measure. Life flows back on an even increased level. He says, giving back with bonus and blessing, giving not getting is the way. Generosity begets generosity. In other words, it creates a culture of generosity. This is true in a home. It's true in a business. It's certainly true in a church. It's just true, period. That's what my, my grandfather, who was my spiritual mentor, used to always tell me. He says, Terry, you can never outgive God. Because I was asking him why I had to tithe on my newspaper route, right? <laughs> Some of you, what is he talking about? Well, I was taught early on that the best way to follow the Lord was to honor him with a tithe or a tenth. And when your first paper route is a, when you're 10 years old and it's for the San Francisco Progress, it doesn't even exist anymore. And you didn't even get anything. You just got, you got was the, whatever that someone decided to tip you, that was what you got. Uh, but out of that, you know, that $1 out of 10 taught me something about what it means to live with God. I know some people say, well, I, I don't believe in that. I, I believe you should give more. You should never limit God to a tithe. But what I've noticed is that people who say that rarely give more, but those who are a tithe, give a tithe frequently, that's just the beginning. And there's something about that openness. Of be and yet, I'm around someone. And for me, I, because I was trained that way, I've never, it's never been hard for me to honor the Lord. It's like someone said, it's just one out of 10 pennies. It's never been hard at it for me to honor the Lord that way. But then I'm, when I'm around, say, someone like my wife, who is just amazingly gracious to people. And it inspires me, because a lot of us are giving in different ways. And when we can create an environment about life where we're walking around trying to bless people, where our desire is to be open to God, and we want to give, well, you know what, I'm going to tell you, it comes back in different ways. It's not about, I'm giving to get back. It's about, God's blessed my life, and I've made a decision, and I'm going to live this kind of way. And God does amazing things. And he returns the blessing in ways that maybe we weren't even realizing they were going to come. It, it shows up. Heart that's soft before, before God. May the Lord give us a good heart, a generous heart, a heart that wants to bless. Lastly, and this will be the last, I think we find our destiny. I think we find our true eternal meaning when we look into the eyes of Jesus. That's this fourth idea that when we really begin to ga gaze into his eyes, we can put this up there, that what we'll see is that our true eternal purpose is found in Jesus. I was, uh, 
I was reading a, uh, a little piece that was called the, uh, the Mirror. And it, it, the guy was talking about Zacchaeus and how he's in, he was imagining the interaction. And in the book, he says this. He, he creates this conversation between Zacchaeus and Jesus. And he says, he says, Zacchaeus, he writes, said the carpenter gently, what did you see that made you desire this peace? And I love this phrase. Good master, I saw mirrored in your eyes the face of the Zacchaeus I was meant to be. What made you desire this peace? Good master, I saw mirrored in your eyes the Zacchaeus I was meant to be. The closer we get to the Lord, the more we begin to understand who we were really meant to be. To others in this life, I saw in your eyes the face of the Zacchaeus I was meant to be. The Lord has things to show us about ourselves, not so that I can know myself, so that I can learn to live as the blessing I've been meant to be for others. Lord, I, I pray that as we sit with this in these closing minutes, as we prepare to close the service out, even with a song, Lord, that we're going to hear shared with us, which really is, it could be called Zacchaeus' prayer. It's this idea, Lord, of being open to a new beginning, new possibilities of what you can do in a life. But I guess, Lord, I am, I am mo moved right now uh, to ask that you would give us largeness of heart. And... Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would be to us a living stream and a, and a brook of life, um, that you would bring into some of our lives now a new season of refreshing, and that you would begin to conceive in us, even in an embryonic stage, Lord, something of a new beginning, of a new thing that you want to do. You're the God of resurrection and life. You're the God who can speak life into dead things, and then they bloom. They just break out. And Lord, I, I pray that as we open up our hearts to you, that there would come movement in us, Lord, towards you, that there would come cleansing and renewal. And if some of us, Lord, have felt like somehow we've just made such a mess of things and we feel ashamed and we feel dead on the inside and, and honestly we feel hopeless to really ever get the breakthroughs that we've been hoping for. So we've just sort of conceded territory of our heart, but that just will never, ever get better. I want to say, Lord, that you show us what you can do. That if we are open, Lord, you can br bring new things into being and you can cause the flower to bloom so that a new fragrance begins to flow, Lord, into a home, into a heart. Break down the walls, Lord. Break down the barriers, Lord. Break down the anger and the shame, Lord, and even the condemnation that keeps us from being open. Lord, don't, and don't let bitterness reside in our heart. And get at that unforgiveness in us, Lord. Help us to walk softly before you. Help us to hold no grudge as best as we can, God, but to be open to you, Lord. And I just pray that you'd bring life and blessing, renewal, promise, all the good that you want to do through us so that others can live. We want to be a blesser. That's what we want to do, Lord, in your name. So just ask for this, Lord. Bless this closing song. Bless our closing minutes. Bless our time of giving as we honor you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God, let it be.